basically. Let's go around the horn, and I'll assume if you give me a go, you've got no instrumentation problems. Booster? Go flight. Retro? Go flight. Fido? Go flight. Control? Telcom? Go. TNC? Econ? Capcom? Go. Surgeon? Go. ONC? Go. ASD? NRAO? Go. Network? Go. You got everything up? Hello, I'm Ian Christie, and this is Terranauts. Today we have another installment of A Terranauts Guide to Leaving the Planet, uh, one that I call Project Mercury Gets Around. But before we get started, let's have a word from our sponsor. With 40 years' experience in the space sector, Serco offers a full range of operational and engineering services. Through long-standing partnerships like the one Serco enjoys with the European Space Agency, Serco contributes to programs like Copernicus and Onda, supporting open data and user experience. With best-in-class capabilities in Earth observation, Serco offers a wide range of space and ground support, from data capture to data handling to data exploitation. For more information on Serco's space capabilities, visit circocom na canada when we left Project Mercury, the U.S. attempt to put a man in orbit, the team was just about to make the first attempt to get an American off the planet. Now, make a note that I am focusing on the U.S. side of the space race for the simple reason that, at least for the, with the resources available to me, it's the story that I felt I could understand well enough to tell. I think that the story of the Russian side of the space race would also be fascinating, but the sources I was able to find were pretty limited and didn't really provide the opportunity to tell the whole story of the Soviet program. That being said, there are some incidents, such as Yuri Gagarin's flight, that are well enough documented that I might be able to make them into their own episodes. Um, the issue, of course, being that for this show, I want to tell the stories of the people who didn't leave the ground, and that information is proving harder to come by. If anyone is aware of good books on the subject, I would be quite happy to hear about them. I should also say that I do plan to take a look at Terranauts from other countries. For instance, I am hoping to do a special episode on Canada's first Terranaut, John Chapman. But for now, we have unfinished business with NASA and Project Mercury and the flight controllers, like Gene Kranz, who are leaving their hotels along the Strip in Cocoa Beach, breathing in that moist, fragrant air of a central Florida night, getting in their cars and heading north along Highway A1A towards the little dome of light in the distance that represents what they hope will be the culmination of all of their efforts for the past two years. Today, weather permitting, they will finally get an American, Al Shepard, into space. Granted, he will not be there for long, but if all goes well, they will finally be in the game. It might seem a little like finally getting a single when the other team has been stroking home runs for a couple of innings, to continue the baseball analogy, but it was something. As Gene Krantz had noted, there was a general feeling of, quote, this time, it has to work, unquote. And of course it did. History remembers that Al Shepard's flight was successful. The flight would last barely 15 minutes, and Shepard would reach an altitude of 116 miles and be transported 280 miles downrange. But for a few moments, he would be beyond the Earth's atmosphere. He would be in space. Although the countdown started well, it did not go entirely smoothly. Al Shepard entered the capsule on the Redstone launch pad. 
at 5.20 a.m. At 9.30 a.m., he was still there. There had been a number of holds in the countdown. They got to within a few minutes of launch when a problem developed in the Redstone power supply that meant they had to recycle to T-minus 35 minutes and start again. Then they had to pause to wait for the weather to clear, which the meteorologists affirmed strongly that it was doing. And then the Goddard computer crashed and had to be rebooted and run through a complete check run. At one point, according to Gene Kranz, Al Shepard growled at his ground crew, why don't you guys just fix this problem and light the candle? But it was too important a moment to go before everything met the mission rules. There wouldn't be a chance to do it over. So, establishing a practice that continues to this day, they took all the time they needed to get it right. And finally, at 9.34 on the 5th of May, 1961, Mercury Redstone 3 left its launch pad at Cape Canaveral and lifted Al Shepard above the Earth's atmosphere and into the history books. Two minutes and 22 seconds later, Shepard, after having been subjected to as much as six Gs by the Redstone, noted booster cutoff and became only the second human being to experience the sensation of being weightless above the Earth. For about five minutes, Shepard flew Freedom 7, as he had named his capsule, in space. He tested the flight control systems and compared the experience to flying the simulator on Earth. And then it was time to come home. The retro rockets fired as per their pre-programmed timing, and Al Shepard returned to the Earth and to gravity. In fact, on the way down, he was subjected uh, to as much as 11 Gs, as the descent was a little bit faster than expected. But in the end, Freedom 7 descended on its parachutes and splashed down north of Grand Bahama Island and was recovered by the aircraft carrier Lake Champlain. And just like that, the curse was broken. Although Project Mercury and NASA were still behind the Soviets, they were at least in the game. And it's easy to forget how momentous that moment was for the Project Mercury team. And while it might have seemed like the end of a long road that day in Mercury Control, in reality, it was just an on-ramp to a highway that would eventually take many who were present that day to the surface of the moon, some of them quite literally. But there was still a lot of work to do. And on the 25th of May, President John F. Kennedy entered the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. and summarily moved the goalposts way downfield. Well, not actually downfield. He pretty much moved them to another stadium in the next town over. On that day, President Kennedy addressed a joint session of Congress and said, in part, quote, First, I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to Earth. No single space project in this period will be more impressive to mankind or more important for the long-range exploration of space, and none will be so difficult or expensive to accomplish, unquote. Well now, how's that for management dropping a stretch goal on you from above? None of the Mercury Project staff had any idea it was coming. They heard about it at the same time as everybody else. They were simultaneously immensely proud that the president and the country had such faith in their abilities and capacities, and overwhelmed at the thought that putting a man on the moon was an awfully big step from a 15-minute suborbital flight. Well, maybe more than a big step, 
Uh, maybe it was a giant leap, one might say. And so it was that the Mercury team attacked their schedule with a renewed gusto and a growing sense of confidence. First up was a repeat of Al Shepard's flight, this time with astronaut Gus Grissom aboard. On 21 July 1961, Mercury Redstone 4 launched Grissom on his suborbital journey that was nearly flawless until the very end. After splashdown, just as the flight controllers were starting to relax, the spacecraft hatch released prematurely and the capsule began to flood. Grissom left the capsule and had to be fished out of the sea by a helicopter, and the capsule itself eventually filled with water and sank. It was a stark reminder that the line between success and failure in the space business is often very fine indeed. And so, with two suborbital flights under their belts, the Mercury team began to plan for the main event, orbital flight. Now, remember at this point that the Mercury team had not yet put anything into orbit. In fact, of the three tests of the Mercury Atlas booster that was to power the orbital flights, two had been failures. To add to the general level of excitement, in August, the Soviet Union put a second cosmonaut, German Titov, into orbit. And the Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev famously said, quote, We have launched Gagarin and Titov into space, and we can deliver a nuclear weapon to any point on the planet, unquote. So really no pressure. Before launching a human on a journey around the planet, the project returned to unmanned flight tests to test the network and the new concepts and systems that orbital flight would bring. Because, of course, the suborbital flight had not required the global network of tracking stations that Gene Kranz had spent so much time putting together over the winter. So, the full global team deployed for the first orbital mission in September 1961. Um, there was less tension, and the spotlight was less intense than it had been, but that did not mean that the events on Earth did not pose a challenge for the teams, especially in the remote sites. As with so many of the details of the early days of the space program, the conditions experienced by the teams at some of these remote sites have largely been forgotten. Some of the sites, especially those in Africa, were not only remote but in fact pretty primitive, consisting just of corrugated metal Quonset huts and arrays of antennas. Gene Kranz relates that at one point in the early days of setting up the system, he nearly caused an international incident when he sent a message, presumably by teletype, asking for an update on the health conditions at the site in Nigeria. He received a response that said, in part, quote, extremely poor, local government performance rather feeble. There are no nightclubs or bars, temperatures as high as 115, and frequent dust storms. When the raising rainy season starts, it will get worse, unquote. The message was intercepted by the Nigerian government, who complained to the U.S. State Department and threatened to remove the Peace Corps unless the U.S. government apologized which it did. It was suggested uh, firmly to Kranz and the global team that they be a bit more circumspect in their communications. So, during preparation for a test flight leading up to the Mercury Atlas orbital flight in September 1961, Gene Kranz was somewhat bemused by a message he received from John Llewellyn, the leader of the control team in Zanzibar off the eastern coast of Africa. Llewellyn was a former Marine and Korean War combat veteran. He was renowned for his calm under pressure and not given to hyperbole, so it raised some eyebrows in Mercury control when the following message was received by teletype 
the day before a major test of the system in the lead-up to the first orbital flight. Quote, My team will remain at sight until tomorrow's test. We have them where we want them. Signed, Llewellyn. Unquote. It was later revealed uh, that Zanzibar was undergoing a significant period of civil unrest at the time. There was rioting surrounding the NASA site, and the team feared that if they left the site, they, they might not be able to return in time for the test. So they hunkered down in place and supported the successful test the following day. In addition to the problem of tracking the spacecraft around the planet, the other major new wrinkle that confronted the Project Mercury team was a hot topic indeed. It was that of re-entry. We have talked about the fact that getting to orbit was really a matter of going very fast rather than flying high, uh, but let's dissect that a little bit more. I may have gone over this before in an earlier episode, maybe one of the rocket science ones, but it's worth reviewing again here. Let's consider a spacecraft that has been lifted above the Earth's atmosphere. It is, more or less, true to say that the only forces acting on the spacecraft at that point are gravity and any force that it generates through its own propulsion system. But at this point, the spacecraft has used up all its rocket fuel and is no longer being accelerated by its booster. So, it's all down to gravity. Literally. The fact of the matter is that any body in space is affected by gravity. It's the force that causes matter to coalesce and eventually form dust clouds, and then stars, and then planets. The force can be incredibly weak out in interplanetary or interstellar space, but it's always there. It slightly bends the path of objects in space, moving them towards other objects. Most of the time, the gravitational pull is dominated by whatever object is a combination of the closest and the most massive. Now, there are times when this is not true, and they are very important, but very specific. And if we ever get to talking about the James Webb Space Telescope or the planned Lunar Gateway, we will no doubt spend some time flinging around terms like Lagrange points, but I will spare you that for now. No, for now, let's consider a spacecraft that is above the Earth's atmosphere, but close enough to the Earth that, for all intents and purposes, the only force it feels is the force of gravity pulling it back towards the Earth with an acceleration of 9.8 meters per second per second, which is the same as what it was when you learned it in high school physics. Now, if the spacecraft is stationary, uh, maybe it has been launched straight up and it has reached the top of its flight, then this acceleration will cause it to fall straight back towards the Earth. But that's not what we want. We want to go around the Earth and stay in orbit. So how do we arrange that? Well, to understand it, we have to realize that in any given small amount of time, our, air, our spacecraft falls the same distance back towards the center of the Earth. If at the same time that it is falling, we move forward by a certain amount, we can arrange it such that instead of getting closer to the Earth, the two movements, forward and down, actually cause us to move along a circular path around the center of the Earth. Now, maybe that's a little hard to visualize. Uh, you'll have to trust me and all of the objects orbiting other objects in the universe that it does work. It can actually be proven pretty simply mathematically, and when you work it out, you find that for an object of a given mass, like the Earth, 
The speed of an object in orbit around it is just a function of the Earth's gravitational constant and the radius of the object's orbit. If you want to get technical, the radius of the orbit is proportional to the square of the object's velocity, meaning that if you double the spacecraft's forward speed, its orbital radius will be four times as large. With this relatively simple formula in hand, it is actually possible to calculate the speed necessary to stay in orbit at any height above the Earth. For a near-Earth orbit, such as the early Mercury flights, and in fact the orbit of the International Space Station today, that speed is um, around 25,000 kilometers an hour. All of which is very exciting until you realize that the energy that has gone into accelerating the spacecraft now has to be removed somehow to slow it back down. Because, of course, if you want to get home, you eventually are going to have to land going effectively zero kilometers an hour. Those of you who remember high school physics will remember that the kinetic energy of an object is given by one-half times its mass times the square of its velocity. For a mercury capsule that weighed about one and a half metric tons, traveling 25,000 kilometers an hour, that corresponds to roughly 36,000 megajoules of energy, uh, which is about the equivalent of the energy released by 8.6 tons of TNT. So how is that energy going to be removed? Well, essentially the same way you remove the kinetic energy of your car every time you step on the brakes, through friction. In this case, though, uh, it will be friction with the atmosphere. As the spacecraft enters the atmosphere, the gases in the atmosphere will rub up against it in a manner similar to the way your brake rotors rub up against the brake pads in your car. The result will be that the kinetic energy will be converted to heat. A lot of heat. When converted to heat, that amount of energy is certainly enough to generate enough heat to melt any known metal. I didn't find an estimate for the mercury capsule specifically. But I know that the leading edges of the wings of the space shuttle typically saw temperatures in the range of 3,000 degrees Celsius during re-entry. So what do we do if we are interested in getting our spacecraft and its occupant home safely in a form that does not resemble charcoal? There are a number of solutions to the re-entry problem that have been tried, but let's focus on the one that the Mercury spacecraft used, which is pretty similar to the one used by Gemini and Apollo, come to that and continues to be used for spacecraft today, like Soyuz. This method uses a heat shield that covers the bottom of the capsule and is covered in an ablative material. This ablative material is designed to essentially burn off as the capsule enters the atmosphere. But it's a little bit more sophisticated than that. The ablative coating actually consists of an outer layer that burns and flakes away, and an inner layer that effectively boils away in the heat. As it heats, the inner layer vaporizes and releases gases which escape through the outer layer. These gases are, actually, cooler than the gas from the atmosphere that is surrounding the capsule. In one of the more bizarre phenomena in physics, this expelled gas forms a boundary layer next to the heat shield that actually insulates the shield from the worst of the heated atmospheric gas. This boundary layer is incredibly thin, but it turns out to actually be a very good insulator. So, the way we conduct re-entry is to turn the spacecraft around so that its heat shield bottom is aimed forward, 
We then fire some retro rockets and the capsule is slowed down and enters the atmosphere with the heat shield leading. As it descends, the heat shield melts, flakes, and boils away, but the capsule stays relatively cool and slows down. Once it is slows down enough, the, a drogue parachute is deployed to stabilize it and slow it further. Finally, the main parachutes deploy and the capsule drops and lands in the ocean and the Navy comes to recover it and its occupant. Except that it's not quite that simple. There are two added complications we need to be concerned about. The first is that we do need to accurately predict where the capsule will come down. The second is that we have to think carefully about how we want the capsule to hit the atmosphere. Because make no mistake, at 25,000 kilometers per hour, the atmosphere is definitely something we will hit as opposed to something we will slip into. Basically, there are two issues, the angle of our flight path or trajectory and the orientation of the spacecraft when it enters the atmosphere. If the trajectory is too shallow, we can actually skip off the atmosphere like a stone hitting the surface of the pond. If the trajectory is too steep, the collision will be so violent that it may actually overwhelm the heat shield, and it may also subject the capsule and its occupant to forces that could prove to be fatal. In order to overcome these issues, both the trajectory and the orientation of the spacecraft are planned carefully so that it will enter the atmosphere and be captured by it but that the bottom of the spacecraft will also act like a bit of an airfoil and actually produce a bit of lift that will keep the spacecraft from diving straight into the atmosphere. If these two factors are controlled carefully, it will be possible to calculate the landing point that is at least accurate enough to land within the reach of one of the Navy's recovery task groups stationed in the Atlantic, Pacific, and Indian Ocean. Well, that's the theory anyways. As we will see, though... NASA and humanity had a lot to learn about the science and operational art of re-entry. Of all the issues that cropped up during Mercury flights, almost every one of them eventually ended up in an analysis about how the issue was going to affect re-entry. And I'm not sure that there was one flight where the Mercury control team didn't hold its breath just a little bit as the spacecraft entered the re-entry blackout zone. Because, oh yes, I forgot to mention that once the capsule is well and truly in the atmosphere, the cloud of ionized gases that surround it prevents any radio communication with it until it is slowed down significantly, basically until the time that it deploys its drogue chute. So for mission controllers, there's always a few minutes where they wondered if they were going to get home safely. Fortunately, the test in September, formerly known as Mercury Atlas IV, went off without a hitch. The mission consisted of launching a pilot simulator, effectively the space version of a crash test dummy, to test environmental controls, uh, a couple of voice tapes to check communications across the tracking network, and some cameras and instrumentation to check things like noise, vibration, and radiation. The launch went well, the capsule performed well, but there was some foreshadowing of future issues as the capsule's attitude control system suffered from some instabilities and it was found that maneuvering the capsule to orient it for re-entry required more effort and critically more time than had been allotted. The re-entry was executed successfully, though, and the first Mercury capsule to orbit the Earth splashed down a little east of Bermuda one orbit and one hour and 20 minutes later after liftoff. And so the scene was set for NASA's next attempt at orbital flight. And although it seems a bit strange in today's world, 
This flight, Mercury Atlas V, was to use a live crew member, just not a human one. On the 29th of November, NASA launched Mercury Atlas V to orbit with a chimpanzee named Enos on board. The flight was planned for three orbits. But early in the second orbit, issues began to develop. The first issue was that cabin temperatures were rising quickly and medical staff started to worry about Enos's safety. At the same time, the capsule attitude control system started to behave in a way that was, as they say in the business, off-nominal. The rate of fuel usage increased dramatically in the second orbit, and it turned out that one of the attitude control jets had failed, and as a result, the automated system was causing the capsule to oscillate as it rotated slowly away from its programmed attitude, and then the flight control system responded to bring it back, only to have the process repeat itself. The flight controllers could see the behavior, but with the limited telemetry they had available, they could not diagnose it fully in real time, and the capsule was rapidly approaching the point at which the retro rockets would have to be fired in order to end the mission cleanly after just two orbits. Staying up for a third orbit, with an attitude control system that was burning too much fuel, and with the cabin heating up uncomfortably, uh, was becoming a serious risk for the capsule's occupants, and for the program. As the capsule passed from the Hawaii control station to the site in California, Chris Kraft made a real-time call to terminate the mission after two orbits. It later emerged that the call had been made with just 12 seconds to spare. Like I said, it is culture in MCC to leave the decisions until they absolutely have to be made, although this might have been a bit closer than MCC would like to cut it. Nonetheless, the retro sequence was initiated on time by the California site, and Enos was returned successfully to Earth after circling the planet twice. Despite the issues, it was an important validation of the Mercury Global Network. They had launched and controlled a spacecraft, they had dealt with some significant issues, made the right calls, and returned their crew members safely to Earth after an orbital flight. It was time. It was time to put the first American in orbit. But I think the story of John Glenn's historic trip around the planet is going to have to wait for the next installment of A Terranaut's Guide to Leaving the Planet, because that's really all the time we have for today's show. If you're listening to these in real time, you should know that we are going to take a little break over the holidays, so there will be no episode on the 24th of December. The show will resume on its usual schedule, starting on the 7th of January. So, I will take this opportunity to wish you all a Merry Christmas or a Happy Holiday Season, and to wish you all a happy and prosperous 2021. And we'll talk to you again soon. Come on, let's keep the chatter down.